Blog Talk Radio. show live and today we have a very very exciting guest with us today we have David Melter who has spent the last 25 years as an entrepreneur and executive in the legal technology sports and entertainment field with an expertise across many industry verticals David's background has uniquely positioned him to become a world renowned thought leader now David's the CEO entrepreneur, life coach, motivational speaker, author, student, and philanthropist. And he has created a platform that allows him to communicate with everyone from college students to C-suite executives by using his overarching principles for business and life, which are gratitude, empathy, accountability, and effective communication. Utilizing these four principles every day, now without further ado, we have the author of Compassionate Capitalism, David Meltzer. Hi, David. Welcome to the Bottom Line Show live today. Hi. Great to hear from you, Lillian. How are you? Uh, great to hear from you, too. Well, let's jump in and dive in deep. And before we get into the heart of the matter, um, tell us a little bit, David, You know, so that our audience and listeners can get familiar with you as a person. You know, Where were you born? Uh, where did you grow up? And did you come from a large family, or did you come from a family of just one or two? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, I was uh, actually born in Akron, Ohio, uh, funny enough, at the same hospital that LeBron James and Steph Curry, two of the greatest basketball players in the world, were born in. Uh, but I had a single mom, single mom and six kids, five boys and one girl, and wow. a tiny apartment. <laughs> And uh, I really, you know, growing up, uh, had a very uh, actionful and loving home. Uh, and I really had one objective, you know. I really believed that my happiness was going to be derived from making a lot of money. And uh, the only pain that I saw in my house was when we couldn't afford, uh, you know, the car breaking or the dishwasher breaking or summer camp. And so I really, at a young age, started focusing in on uh, making a lot of money so I, I could create happiness and ease in my life. Wow. And so when you were in, you know, what kind of student were you in in school? Were you pretty focused on, you know, your grades and schooling and so forth, or were you more of a rambunctious, athletic kind of a kid or a combination of Yeah, sure. So I, you know, I I had a great, uh, great mom that empowered us. And although in my family I felt like I was the low end of the academic pool, my siblings all went to the Ivy Leagues, uh, I, I was, you know, in retrospect, a very good student. I got one B uh, throughout high school and got a scholarship uh, in college. But my true interests weren't really academic. At the time, my interests were athletic, and uh, I wanted to be a professional football player and ended up playing college football uh, and really, really enjoyed it. And I think because I was a middle child, that was the way that I was going to stand out with all my highly intelligent academic siblings. 
Wow. So did you did you have any uh, challenges or major adversities while you were growing up in school? Um, you know, just I think the only challenges I had was that uh, my mom tried to surround us with the right people and the right ideas in more affluent area with better schools, and uh, we were pretty much the poorest kids. My parents got divorced when I was very young. My mom moved us out to Southern California, which was a blessing. Um, and so I think truly as a, a young kid, my only challenges were economic, uh, which created you know a real drive in my life to be an entrepreneur uh, and to figure out how I could uh, really, you know, motivated by taking care of my mom and my siblings and uh, not having uh, any other experience with true pain other than economic, I, I felt that I could resolve that quite easily by being financially successful and secure. So when you went to college and you were playing college, by the way, which school did you go to? I went to one of the only colleges that would let me play football. So I went to Occidental College, which is a Division three school. At the time, they had a tremendous football team. Uh, we went to the national playoffs almost every year. Uh, but wow. Occidental College is where Obama and uh, J- Jack Kemp, very, very small liberal arts school in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And, and so uh, when you were at Occidental, um, you know, what was your major and, and what did you, what was your area that you decided to focus on? You know, initially I, I wanted to be a doctor because I thought uh, if I wasn't going to be a professional football player, which in college I learned I wasn't going to be very quickly, uh, I, I decided that I'd go to med school. And so I was uh, pre-med initially. And it was a funny story because I met my uh, my older brother when he was doing his residency over at UCLA. And I walked into the hospital to visit him and I told him, you know, I, I just hate hospitals. And he looked at me in complete, utter disbelief. He said, David, because you're in pre-med at one of the best liberal arts schools in the country to be a doctor and you don't like hospitals. What are you thinking? I said, well, I don't want to be a hospital doctor. <laughs> and, and I use this story because I get so many people uh, that, you know, I learned this great lesson from my brother to be more interested than interesting. And, uh, and I learned uh, this lesson, and so many people come up to me and want to be sports agents, and I think they know about as much about being a sports agent as I did about being a doctor when I was 18. So I really encourage people to be more interested than interesting. Uh, after I decided that I wasn't going to be a doctor, of course, to be rich, there was only other one choice in, in my family, that was to be a lawyer. Uh, and so I studied, and I ended up going to Tulane Law School in Louisiana to study international oil and gas and be a very wealthy oil and gas litigator. That was my plan. Wow. So you, so you definitely had, that's a pretty big switch from medicine to, to, you know, going into, you know, the sports agency business. So how, you know, I'm always intrigued with people's journeys and, and stories, and you have a great, you know, book that you have out right now that is called Compassionate Capitalism. And so we'll get to that in a minute. But you must have had, um, you know, what was the thing that, you know, I, I noticed that your, when I first met you, I actually met you with Warren Moon, who, as we all know, got his Correct. first big break in discovery by Lee Steinberg, and, you know, he's a Hall of Famer, et cetera. So how did that, how did that transition go from you being in college to getting started in, in the sports agency business and, you know, getting that spark to, you know, catch fire? Yeah, it was very interesting. I actually, when I graduated law school, I had two choices. One, to be a litigator 
and two, okay. the second was to sell legal research online. And uh, I went to my mom to ask her for advice, and she, of course, in her secure position, told me I should be a real lawyer because, in her opinion, the <laughs> internet was going to be a, <laughs> was going to be a fad. And so, for the first time in my life, I realized that just because someone loved me doesn't mean they would give me good advice. And so I actually went against my mom's uh, advice and I sold uh, legal research on the internet uh, and I grew that business. I, uh, Thomson Reuters merged with West Publishing for $3.5 billion. Accenture hired me out of that company to run a, uh, a wireless proxy server company in the Silicon Valley. And then Samsung hired me to be the CEO of their first convergence device, the world's first Windows C device. And I know that doesn't uh, answer your question of how I got into sports. Well, what happened was uh, being very successful in achieving my goals of making a lot of money, uh, I fell into a, a self-entitling trap, uh, and I lost millions of dollars, uh, went bankrupt, and uh, I met Lee Steinberg. And Lee Steinberg hired me in 48 hours of meeting me to be his chief operating officer, and then I became the CEO within six months of the most notable sports agency in the world. And that's where I met Warren Moon. And seven years ago, uh, Warren and I, through Lee's personal issues, spun off you know, what's now one of the most notable sports agent, uh, marketing companies uh, here in Orange County, California, Sports One Marketing. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a, that's a fantastic story. And so... Tell us about, you know, the, the it's no secret, the world of sports agencies and that world of um, the sports business in general is a very cutthroat, very um, extremely competitive, probably the one of the most competitive um, fields, I would say, in my opinion, you know, from a business perspective and as an observer, you know, on the outside. Um, it's probably one of the most cutthroat, uh, you know, business industries that there is. So how do you go from... It seems so um, paradoxical to be in uh, that type of um, environment, and you know now you, you know your journey has brought you to the point where you are an active, practicing, compassionate capitalist. How did yeah, that you know, and that <laughs> that's a great question because you know it started with Lee, who was truly a philanthropist and a humanitarian, and. Uh, when we started our company, Warren and I, our objective was not only to make a lot of money, uh, but it was to help a lot of people and create change and have fun. And so, uh, in fact, I trademarked the saying, uh, make a lot of money, help a lot of people, and have a lot of fun. And so we set upon a journey to challenge ourselves in the most competitive and cutthroat business to shift the paradigm to not just take value and, and not you know, look at things in a self-centered, competitive negotiation way. Mm -hmm. But what we do is we wanted to utilize the energy of celebrity, the energy of athletes, the energy and positiveness of sports by creating value and trusting the universe that would come back tenfold to us and allow us to attract all the different things that we want, including making a lot of money, but doing it the right way by helping people and challenging ourselves to find economic solutions, situational knowledge, to find how to monetize this extraordinary vertical multi-billion dollar business of sports and entertainment. So in your book you talk about capitalism being very good. And 
um, I think we're all familiar with, uh, you know, before the economy took this big turn during the 2008 mortgage crisis, you know, everybody was, you know, living large and doing fantastic. And really since the Reagan years, of course, we had a few bumps along the way. But for the most part, you know, everyone's doing really fantastic. The money's moving. Um, things are growing and striving. And uh, it seems like after the mortgage crisis, it seems that, like capitalism really got a bad rap, in my opinion. And some people yeah. are even not making money and so forth. Um, but in your book, you talk about how capitalism has been very good. Why do you say that? Yeah, I think uh, capitalism is an expansive philosophy. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it's how you become a capitalist. Are you, you know, milking the system? Are you ego-based, narcissistic, or Capitalism can be utilized in a philanthropic and humanitarian way to create change, to expand not only our local economies and our domestic economies, but our international uh, economy. And so capitalism uh, drives us to expand, and it's the purpose that we put behind it, the pursuit of our potential, that's the most important component of capitalism. And when that component is based off of scarcity, like it was in 2008, uh, that's where capitalism runs into problems. So what we try to do is to infuse it with an abundant philosophy and energy so that capitalism works at the most efficient, effective, and statistically successful way. So so you're, I noticed that you said that uh, when you have capitalism that's backed by purpose and, um, you know, because capitalism actually expands economies and communities, when you have, um, I guess, a, a purpose that's wrapped in integrity and tied, tied instead of to a fear-based, uh, I would say, aggression, you know, because if you're coming from a lack and your purpose is very fearful, then you're probably willing to stop but nothing, I would imagine, to uh, make that almighty daughter, dollar. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, and that's what happened on Wall Street uh, with the subprime lending, our housing market, our stock market, you know, that scarcity and greed uh, and that energy itself will create void shortages and obstacles that really puts a black eye on capitalism. But it's not capitalism that causes it. It's human nature. And that's why it's so important to study economic history like we have in Compassionate Capitalism because uh, the importance of studying history is that human nature never changes. In your book, you also talk about uh, employee disengagement, and you talk about how people are our greatest assets, and they're also our greatest resources. Can you tell me a little bit more about uh, employee disengagement? Yeah, so what we forget about is the company really the form of its whole and the form of its parts, and that when we connect, it's with the people and the ideas at our company. And so although we have individual beliefs as leaders in corporations and entrepreneurs, it's essential that our collective belief or the employee engagement in that belief and culture is aligned with that of the leadership. And so what we try to do to effectuate its efficiency and statistical success is make sure that not only does the leadership have their individual and collective beliefs and cultures, but it is portrayed and utilized throughout the organization with all of their employees so that everyone has mutual respect to all the people and all the ideas that are shared within the organization. Hmm. Um, in your book, you go, I'm going to read this quote because you quote Albert Einstein, 
in regards to the changing nature of value creation. And it says here, a human being is part of a whole called by us, the universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Tell me a little bit more about the changing nature of value. Yeah, so the quote of Einstein uh, is really about relativity. And, you know, how closely is the sphere of relativity in our lives where some people, the narcissists in the universe, uh, their only theory and uh, prison of relativity is that which is only considered by themselves or those closest to them. When we expand out that vision of relativity to understand that all living beings, all nature and all the universe is relative to us and our perceptions, therefore the illusion that then creates the perception or reality that we have is one of compassion. And so if we have those four components, gratitude, empathy, accountability, and effective communication, we can expand our spheres of relativity so that our decisions not only affect ourselves and those closest to us, but we challenge ourselves so that we can affect and effectuate change, positive change in purpose, and all of those things relative to us in the universe. Hmm. So, so... So again, you know, you're in a very cutthroat industry, and it seems like you know, you know, you'd be the lone ranger out there. And, and I know that your your journey has been one of uh, really doing it in a different way, and again, with compassionate capitalism and not being so egocentric and narcissistic, you know, in your pursuit to to do an, a superb job. So I'm sure oftentimes you were encountered with you know, someone who is of the complete opposite mindset. So how did you how did you unfold yourself and you know, it seems it's so contradictory to what the norm is and yet you've been phenomenally successful, you know, in approaching business and your your personal practice uh with your partner Warren Moon. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, that uh, you know, likes attract likes. And then when we focus on the positive side of things uh, and we don't allow uh, those things that we resist to persist. And so we utilize, in a, you know, a very strong, a strong belief and a strong value system uh, to attract those people that have like beliefs and like purposes to us. And then when those are people that uh, do not subscribe or are aligned with the abundant philosophies that we have, we simply allow them to fall away. So we don't create resistance. We don't need to fight it or challenge it. We allow them just simply to fall fall away and continue to surround ourselves with the right people and the right idea. So no matter how beneficial it may be in certain relationships or negotiations to do business with people uh, that may not be aligned with compassionate capitalism or abundance, we are very strong-headed of only doing business with like-minded people and only allowing those people that are like-minded, abundant, philanthropic people to align with what we're doing and support our own causes. So we really don't, although we counter it, we don't allow it to affect us or engage with us. 
So, you know, and that is, I think, really at the heart of the matter of um, the golden thread, if you will, that I see with you and with many of the uh, folks that we've had here on the Bottom Line Show Live. And it's that thread of integrity, which, which interestingly enough, as you're telling me this, I'm, uh, what I'm noticing is that that is the greatest takeaway um, when you are in a uh, position of negotiating. And, oh, by the way, uh, I know that you have negotiated over $2 billion in sports and entertainment contracts, so you've definitely been around the block maybe once or twice. And the greatest takeaway and the greatest position of power in any negotiation is when you can, in fact, just step away and say, you know, you know I need to do a transaction and I need to put a deal together, but I may not necessarily need to do this particular deal. Yeah, you know, that's an important thing is to be able to walk away, right? If you're not ready to walk, you're not ready to negotiate. And if you're not aligned uh, with your own beliefs, uh, then you're going to start attracting people that don't have either your beliefs or certain beliefs that you need to do business with. And so it's amazing how either people fall away or re-engineer their vision to align with yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it gets back to that centeredness of being an integrity. You're not willing to compromise your integrity and the way you're willing to do business. And I love what you just said, too, about how when you're willing to walk away when it's not right and it's not in alignment with you and your organization and how you want to do business, um, that you let let it fall away. And um, you by taking that approach, the resistance obviously falls away. It, it dissipates in a very non-confrontational way. Yeah, and, and there's no waste of energy, right? So it's all about how efficient and effective we are with our energy, and there's so much energy wasted trying to re-engineer and change the nature of certain people, and instead I allow the universe to take care of that change and maturation, and I have to just focus introspectively on my own value system, which then, like I said, likes will attract likes, and the more that I trust the universe the more those types of people be attracted to me. Yeah, you, and you talk a lot, uh, in your book about how scarcity is created by, you know, you have a limited number of professional athletes at any given time that are available, you know, for you to do what it is that you do. And uh, you mentioned a mutual friend of ours, Lee Steinberg, who's also a very compassionate capitalist and a hum, you know, big in terms of humanitarian and altruistic, um, you know, purposes. And... Um, you are responsible for having, you know, you've had clients that have donated, you know, over over half a billion dollars to charities around the world. So can you share with us maybe an instance where maybe you were in a negotiation and perhaps you had something that maybe looked like it was going sideways when moments before it looked like it was, you know, how oftentimes in negotiations it looks like you, it's like, okay, it's a done deal. You only have 2% more to go and you're like uh the two percent that's like you know we got 98 percent done and then all of a sudden you have a big surprise you're like oh no would you share with us you know one of those situations where you were actually in a predicament like that perhaps and maybe you were able to turn it around yeah you know um my favorite story is actually about lee uh because it's the, the classic example of that is when he was negotiating uh for the contract for steve young who it was not going to be a popular decision to replace Joe Montana with Steve Young. And uh, they're very difficult negotiations that Lee and our team were in. And 
uh, Steve ended up getting thrown out at about two in the morning of uh, Eddie Bartolo's uh, office. And Steve uh, just was exhausted. Uh, he was upset. Uh, Lee and him were sitting on a curb, and Steve was in tears, basically telling Lee that he screwed it up. And, uh, you know, Lee, Lee looked at Steve and said, look, if by 7 a.m., if by 7 a.m. I don't have a, a contract signed, Steve, then just fire me. Uh, but I promise you that we've done the right things. We've stuck to what our beliefs are, and that when they have time to look at what I've presented to them, uh, it makes not only economic sense but emotional sense. And you'll see that before 7 a.m. Uh, in our deadline that they'll sign that agreement. And sure enough, uh, about 6.15 a.m., uh, I believe it was Carmen Policy called Lee, and said, you guys got a done deal. And so, you know, there's a classic example of being 98% of the way there and the entire deal falling apart, but having the confidence in, you know, not only the economics, but the business opportunity and sticking to your guns. Because Lee could have easily folded, especially because his client was folding. And, you know, Uh it makes it very difficult to stick to what you believe in when your client uh, doesn't have that same belief. Um, so, you know, and that was a negotiation you said that was directly with Lee, right? Yeah, directly with Lee. So you're, and it's interesting, so you, here you are both, you know, with the same, you know, um, soulful purpose, if you don't mind my using that term. You're both sure. compassionate capitalists, but, you know, of course you have to, you have a fiduciary, a legal responsibility to, uh, you know, negotiate in benefit and favor of your client. Um, what's interesting to me is that, you know, in the book you talk about leadership, you know, and how you define leadership as the activity of causing the kind of movement where you you want it to go into a certain direction. And you're both of like mind and heart where you're both compassionate capitalists. Um, That being said, um, in an organization, any given organization, you know, usually you have a potpourri of people of different belief systems from a religious perspective and even a cultural perspective. So how have you been able to um, bring the unity that you have so successfully done in your practice where you have people of different faiths, different religions, different cultures, um, and still unify it so that you can all respectfully, you know, you're still operating with respect towards other people's beliefs, but you still have that one-mindedness and that intention, which brings in a powerful energy, which you so beautifully manifest. Yeah, so what I do is, uh, you know, I take it out of the religious realm and put it into an energetic realm of, you know, four principles, you know, gratitude, empathy, accountability, and effective communication. And then using effective communication, I talk about communicating two ways. Uh, one, one would be up, whatever they believe in, whatever they believe in, so I don't have to bring mm-hmm. religion religion into it, and then out, which would be every other person uh, around you or all that's relative around you. Those are the two, the two ways that I teach everyone to communicate, so I extract religious beliefs from it and make it more personal business beliefs based off of four cultural points, gratitude, empathy, accountability, and effective communication, and then communicating it up and out. Mhm. That makes a lot of sense. 
so you're you're focusing more on the energy side of it, which we, we all know. You know, one of the things that we that I love about um, you know talking about these secrets of success is that you know you and I and we're 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 keenly aware that the most powerful realm is that which is not seen by the you know the human naked eye, not the things that happen in the three D world, but it's the things that cannot be seen and energy and spirit cannot be seen. But you know that that's the driving force that brings things into 3D manifestation. And if it's well-intentioned, then, of course, you know you've got one result. And if it's ill-intentioned, well, of course, it's got a a much worse intention. So are you generally seeking sure. able to get people to buy in, uh, you know, taking that approach? Yeah, you know, I, I use a, a math approach. Uh, so, you know, I, I talk approach. about physics. As, yeah, mm-hmm. so physics... I talk about the physics of, of energy and quantum physics, mm-hmm. metaphysics, and take it to a very sim- simple realm. Uh, so, you know, it makes it very easy for uh, people to understand. You can take highly complex uh, physics and uh, turn them into uh, very simple statements that make sense to everybody. Uh, so I created a mission equation uh, that allows people to utilize focus and intention so I'd let them figure out maybe and prioritize the top three, three three things they want in their life and then allot a certain amount of minutes every day to that uh, and then focus in on the efficiency and statistical success and then is exponentially timed by what I call focus or the power of intention. So when I kind of put these mathematical equations together, uh, then it makes it really simple for people to, like I said, align with what is now a business culture and a business philosophy more than religious or spiritual uh, vision. Okay. Um, you're, in the book, you have a very uh, curious, very uh, unusual term that you use that I want to share with our audience, and I'd love for you to give us some insight as to how that came about. And there's a term that you talk about, uh, you, you talk about a leader as a merchant priest which to me sounds like a complete oxymoron. What is a, a merchant priest? So, yes, so <laughs> way back one, or, and it is an oxymoron. That's probably why I went to Occidental. Uh, but a merchant priest <laughs> is someone that has, has that combination of spirituality and business and pragmatic thinking. Mm-hmm. So the old merchant priest, were the ones that derived integrity into business or compassion to capitalism. And I think, uh, you know, utilizing the merchant priest as an icon for capitalism uh, makes a lot of sense that you can still live within integrity at a higher vibration at the truth and yet create abundance for all that are relative to us and not just in our own sphere of influence. Well, you talk about vibration, which we know that the universe is all organized, you know, by vibration by vibration and everything has a vibration to it and and uh, so I'm kind of curious who is your mentor and your your you know the person that probably influenced you the most throughout your career um you know many authors uh were my mentors I believe you should have three mentors at all times in your life uh current today today I have three mentors which are uh Steve Wynn uh, Greg Reed from the Pulling Hill Foundation and uh, Warren Moon. Uh, but when I was young, my mentors were Napoleon Hill, uh, Wayne Dyer, 
uh, who wrote The Power of Intention, uh, people like that. And then uh, in business, I've had several mentors uh, at West Publishing. There was a man named Lou Lombardi that was a vice president uh, in his 60s when I was in my 20s. Uh, and then uh, at Samsung, uh, people like Dr. Jacobs at Qualcomm uh, and other great in, in technology leaders. Uh, and then, of course, Lee Steinberg, as I uh, would not have such a huge career in sports without the mentorship, guidance, and friendship uh, that Lee and, and Warren have given me. Wow. Yeah, and all the, it's funny, I'm, I'm actually, I know all three of those individuals. I've actually been in Steve Wynn's home. And um, the uh, question I would pose to you is, um, you talked about vibration. And one of the things that... Uh, is a golden thread also with the secrets of success. I realize that transcend, you know, gender, transcend industry, is that people at a certain level of success have a certain vibration that they emanate, but there's there's a conscientiousness about it. You know, for example, you actually brought up the the fact that there is a certain vibration that you know exists as you're moving forward in business. So it's it's not just a business thing; it's a life thing. You, David Meltzer, operate with the awareness of this vibration and you're responsible for the vibration that you're putting out as well as the one that you're receiving. Would you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, I think vibration is one of the most important things in my life and it's also the math that I teach that, you know, stemming from a basis that you, know, you cannot be aware of anything that vibrates less than, I mean, greater than you. So one of the keys of just through my meditation, my business my practices, my personal life is that if I can expand or increase my vibration, I can be aware of that which most people aren't aware of. And I can attract more rapidly and accurately that's what, that which I want and allow it to come to me. So vibration is essential when you understand the physics and mass of the universe that you can only be aware of that which vibrates equal to or less than you. So you may well and might as well expand your vibration, increase it to the best of your ability. Hmm. That's beautiful. Um, if your life was a motion picture, it was a film, and you could fast forward to the most exciting point in that film, what would that be? You know, it would be uh, the moment that, uh, you know, I lost everything and my wife confronted me. Uh, and said, hey, you need to go back and take stock in who you were and who you become. And, you know, that one moment was, you know, the, the crux, the, the catalyst to changing my direction uh, into a really positive force that has created and manifested everything I've desired. And, uh, albeit, you know, very difficult and challenging to hit rock bottom, uh, but it was probably the most enlightening and crucial moment of my life. What did you feel in the moment that she had, I like to call those a come to Jesus moment. Uh, yeah. What were you feeling? Because I can't imagine, you know, now there's no hiding. You can't be in denial because now you have another human being that's telling you face to face, hey, listen up, buddy. What, what did it yeah. feel like in that moment? Well, I, I had to you know, and I get choked up, right, internally, uh, it, it, it was almost freeing, you know, that, that somebody else knew my secret and that, you know, to be accountable for everything and for somebody to tell me, 
you know, that the Midas touch days were over and that, you know, I now had to empower myself to prove all the things that I had portrayed. And so that, you know, really on this journey of understanding my happiness is derived by the pursuit of my potential, whether it's the potential as a father, a husband, a businessman, a sports agent, whatever it is, you know, that pursuit of my potential really created an enlightenment, a purpose and fulfillment at a very singular moment in my life. Wow, 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 wow. So, wow, my realization, and, and, and you're sharing that with us right now, is that in the moment that you had that come-to-Jesus moment, when you're really at your lowest and you hit rock bottom, that really it was a death to what you had been and what had happened in the past. And the key word you said it, you had a freeing sensation. Can yeah. you go a little bit there? Because it sounds like that was the catalyst. And it could have gone either way. You could have, from rock bottom, you could have just, you know, lots of people hit rock bottom like that, and they're like, you know what, that's it. I'm hanging up my gloves. Yeah. I'm going to off myself. Or you chose to go in the other direction, and you were, that's crazy that you were freed in that moment. You've got to share it. What was that like? What went through your mind and your heart? That's that's wild. Yeah, for me it was that I had been released from an illusion of of who I portrayed. You know, this person that wanted to be loved by everyone, and you know, I didn't even know who I was anymore. And that the person that was closest to me, you know, had recognized I wasn't who I was and and I just quit pretending and just you know to, to hit rock bottom I had nothing to lose anymore I had no expectations I had no image or brand or anything except for humility and that radical humility uh, was so freeing after being so successful at such a young age and you know just being free to say hey you know I'm human and I screwed up and I'm going to do this right the next time around and I got plenty of time to do it. Wow. That is absolutely huge. Absolutely huge. So you are now free to be the person that you really had always been, but you had been guarded and you were not, uh, you were really, it sounds like you weren't authentic to yourself. And so you were chasing stuff before or chasing things or goals or, you know, whatever it was, in the, you know, along with the portrayals. And so now you were able to really step into who you truly, really were. Yeah, I think taking stock in who I was to become and to manifest that extraordinary wealth I was able to manifest and then now be free of all the false expectations and ego-driven things that I had done since, you know, I had uh, left Samsung. And I was, you know, instead of living on the past, I, I now had a future, and it, and and that also contributed to my freedom. So you can imagine growing up with six kids, being poor your whole life, and and then yeah. being able to manifest everything you ever wanted, and then realizing when you got there that everything you wanted wasn't going to make you happy. And so then I had to rid myself through self sabotage and entitlement, all the things that weren't making me happy so that I could rebuild, like I said, under the power of purpose, the power of intention, and, and that potential of what I could become. And that journey of you know, pursuing that potential really became you know, the catalyst 
but that feeling was extraordinary. Uh, and, it, you know, no one close to me understood why, you know, when things, you know, hit rock bottom, I had this confident smirk on my face and I was just feeling really good. It, it worried my wife, actually. She's said to me, you know, yeah, she's like, Dave, you know, terrified. You know, we had a golf course, 33 properties. And she said, Dave, why? you know, I've never seen, you're not even depressed. Do you even care? I said, no, it's not that I don't care. It's that I was a millionaire in nine months out of law school. I was a multimillionaire by my 30s. I knew nobody. I had no money. I had no relationships, no situation at all. I said, if I could do it the first time around that fast, imagine what I can do with compassionate capitalism. Imagine what I can do, you know, with all the knowledge and people and relationship capital in, in, in this pursuit. Imagine what I can do this time around. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. So this is this is really fascinating because, you know, especially coming from a, a challenging and a, a poor, less affluent background, you know, your worst nightmare is, you know, okay, you're out of school, you're making a million bucks, you're on the fast track, you're materially speaking, you've got success, you know, you're you're basically wrapped as a package of success. And the worst thing that could possibly happen in your mind probably was that you would lose everything, and then that's exactly what happens. You lose right, everything. You nailed it. Oh, I can't imagine. And then you, you know, one thing is if you lose everything and you're single, but when you're you lose everything and now you've got a wife and kids and family and you've got society, you know, that's a huge piece of you know, you're not having a piece of humble pie. But, you know, you're basically eating the entire humble pie at that point. Uh, yeah, so that's yeah, extraordinary it's, it's, that you didn't wallow there. I said, yeah, it's it's extraordinary that you didn't wallow there and that your yeah. that your inner being recognized. You know, I know how to I know how to make money. The issue is not making money. You knew that you had no. more of an attitude or a or a spiritual adjustment, if you will. Correct, and you know that's why I keep the phrase radical humility. Uh, on my desk and on my nightstand, and if if through all the successes I'm having now, if my wife ever hears me talking about something in the space of uh, of ego, you know she'll just tell me whisper so even whisper sometimes in my ear, hey, radical humility, uh, <laughs> and it's an extraordinary it's an extraordinary feeling to to be humble. And it's so much more powerful. Uh, but I, I tell people, you, you nailed it, Lillian, when you said it must have been really difficult because, you know, I, I'm blessed to speak around the world right now. And One of the things I say on stage all the time is if somebody would have told me 10 years ago that I would have written a book bragging about my failure and loss of everything and bankruptcy and stand on stage and tell everybody that the greatest moment in my life was when I went bankrupt and hit rock bottom, you know, I, I would have been so full of shame, blame, and justification. And now I have a sense of humility about it that, look, I'm human. I made these mistakes. And what the, you know, the best part about me is, is I always believed, you know, that if I could look up, I could get up. And that I learned that that money that I dreamed about for 20-some years was not the pursuit of happiness. It was this pursuit of my potential, the higher vibration that I really wanted. I love what you just said. If I can look up, I can get up. If I can look up, so to anyone that's listening out there, if they're you know hitting rock bottom or have hit rock bottom, 
They need to hear that. They need to hear that if they can look up, they can get up because you did. And if you did, they can. What a powerful and what a beautiful message that in the seeds of that huge adversity that you were actually freed and the old you died and the new, the new you was actually born that day. And here you are now sharing that with us. Wow. Well, is there, you know, if people want to see you speaking live, is there any place where we can see you uh, sometime soon? David? Oh, my gosh. I think we may have left David, and we're here just left with a few minutes left to the show. Uh, David, I don't know if you've hit the mute button, or we don't appear to have you disconnected on our dash. Dashboard still shows you. In any event, um, we basically got the whole story here with our uh, guest, David Meltzer, who is uh, the CEO at Sports One Marketing. I encourage you to pick up his book, Compassionate Capitalism, A Journey to the Soul of Business, available both on his website as well as Amazon.com. David, it's been a wonderful hour. We look forward to having you back in the future. That's the uh, wrap for our show today at the Bottom Line Show Live. We air every Wednesday from 11 to 11 a.m. to 12 o'clock. And we wish you peace and love always. Bye-bye.